Good morning again. Um, before I get started here, um, one of our deacons found a set of car keys out in the parking lot. Um, Nathan McBride. Where'd you go, Nathan? Is he in here still? He'll be coming in in just a moment. Uh, but if you if you find that you're missing some car keys, please come find me or find Nathan McBride, and we'll make sure to get those keys back to you. Um, so over the past few weeks on Sunday mornings, uh, what we've been doing is we've been working our way through this song in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, and, and it's a song about... God's suffering servant. Um, It's a song and it's a prophecy about this servant that God was going to send into the world who would come and suffer and through his suffering deliver his people. And, And the reason we've been looking at this song in the weeks leading up to Christmas is because the servant whom God sent to deliver his people through his suffering is, of course, Jesus. Um, and so here's what I want us to do this morning. The last time we're in this, um, in this passage is it's going to be a little different uh, than we normally do things. But I want to take a couple of minutes up front to remind you of the themes we've considered in the five stanzas of this song. Um, just briefly remind you of those themes. And then I want to come... And I want to read the whole song together at once. It's printed in your bulletin if you want to find that. Um, You know, honestly, to hear God himself sing this song to you um, about his son is far more important than anything I could could say this morning. Um, And so that's what I want to do. And after that, we'll pray, and then you'll get a a briefish sermon uh, after that. I told our, uh, one of our pastors, Woody Marker, I said, I'm going to preach a brief sermon. And he, he laughed at me. Um, and uh, that hurt. Uh, but, um, but I'm going to try. It'll be briefish. Um, and, so, and we'll look at the final theme, uh, which is Christmas and the exalted servant. So, so listen, the last verses of Isaiah chapter 52, they tell us about the puzzling servant. Um, This servant, we're told in those verses, is going to be this this strange mixture. Because on the one hand, he would be perfectly wise and he would be triumphant in his mission. And therefore, he would be loved and adored by his father. Um, But on the other hand, he was also going to be crushed beyond recognition. Marred beyond human semblance. Uh, His blood would be spilt in a violent death and he would be crushed and rejected. And and so it feels like, even when you read those verses, it feels like an irreconcilable puzzle. And yet God assures us that in his economy, the experience of suffering and the love of God are very, very compatible. In fact, they fit together like perfectly matched puzzle pieces. In his economy. And then, second, when we got to the opening verses of Isaiah 53, um, we're told that the servant came and he came completely upside down to the world's expectations. He was the king of creation. Isaiah says he was the arm of the Lord, and yet he came in weakness. Right? He had no beauty that we should desire him. He came as a nobody, a nothing, despised and rejected, and it led him to the shame, a shameful death on the cross. But from that place, the upside-down servant, this upside-down servant, 
turn the world upside down. Because third, we're told in this song that the servant was the sacrificial servant. Right? He came to bear our sorrows in his flesh, to be pierced for our transgressions, to die for us. The beauty of all the prepositions in this passage that he was crushed for our iniquities. That upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his, with his wounds... We are healed. On him was laid the iniquity of us all. He came to die as a sacrifice in our place. And then fourth, this song sings of the voluntary servant. The puzzling servant, the upside down servant, now the voluntary servant. Um, this servant came and he, is, he was the only man to have ever lived whose life merited life. I mean, he didn't have to die. But he voluntarily chose to die for us. But not only that, he voluntarily lived for us the life we could not live so that we would get the credit of his perfect life. He voluntarily came so that many would be accounted righteous, as Isaiah puts it. And then finally, in the fifth theme today, we're going to touch on the exalted servant, um, which the first verse of this passage hints at, but the final verses really bring to a conclusion because because this servant did all of this that we've just been talking about, he's going to be lifted up and exalted. That is, he will be rewarded for what he's accomplished. And here's maybe the most astounding thing. Can you guess what his reward was for his perfectly righteous life, for his sacrificial, voluntary suffering and death? We're told in this passage that it's us. We are his reward. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. Now, let's read Isaiah 52 and 53 and listen to this song sung by the father of the suffering servant. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth 
Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. As Isaiah says elsewhere, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him in prayer and ask for his help as we look at this. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that we can be together today. We thank you that we have the wonderful privilege of reading and hearing your words spoken to us. And we pray that you would remind us um, this morning that when you open your mouth to speak, things are no longer the same. When you open your mouth to speak, you call everything that is into existence. When your son walked this earth, he spoke, and by the power of his voice, the deaf were made to hear, the blind were made to see, the lame were made to walk, even the dead came out of their tombs. Father, would you remind us of the power of your word this morning as we give our attention to it? And would you, by your spirit, take this word and write it upon our hearts? Make us see, make us hear, make us walk, even raise the dead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now for the briefish sermon. Um, John Newton, uh, author of the hymn Amazing Grace, uh, when he was nearing death, his body was failing and his mind was failing too. Um, But just before he died on his deathbed, he told his friend William J. this. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner And that Christ is a great Savior. So today and this week as we celebrate uh, Christmas together uh, and the fulfillment of God's promise to send this suffering servant of Isaiah 53, I want our celebration to include some meditation upon the greatness of our sin and the greatness of our Savior um, as we consider Christmas and the exalted servant. So here's where we're going to go. We're going to talk about three points. The greatness of our sin, the greatness of our Savior's salvation, and then finally, the Savior's great exaltation. 
Okay, first, think with me about the greatness of our sin. Back in verse 6 of this passage, uh, Isaiah famously wrote, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And, and I want you to think, think with me about what a great definition that is of sin. Of really the heart and the essence of the greatness of our sin. We've turned to our own way. We've gone astray, Isaiah writes. Uh, we were made to live under the righteous, loving reign of our king. That's what we were made for. But we've all turned away. Listen, sin is never just behaviorism in the Bible. I, I know that's how it gets caricatured a lot of the time. But the Bible sees that the heart and the essence of our sin isn't really our behavior. It is our turning away from God. When you open up the Bible and you read about the first sin in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve took and ate the forbidden fruit, right? At, at first blush, if you're honest, I think, you hear that story and it just seems like a strange story. <laughs> you know, for, for the destiny of the world and of humanity to rest upon the eating or not eating of a fruit... Uh, seems a little strange. I, I mean, after all, if you think about it, <clears throat> here's this tree in this garden, and um, it was a part of God's good, perfect, unblemished creation. This was before the fall. So I, I don't know what the fruit was. We don't know. But it certainly wasn't poisonous. I mean, this is God's perfect creation. So why would God give such an odd commandment for everything to rest upon? I mean, why didn't God give them a command that would have made, I think, a little bit more sense to them and to us? You know, he could have said, putting you in this garden, don't kill each other. You know, uh, don't steal from each other. Don't lie to each other. Because if God had said, don't kill each other, don't steal, don't lie, or something like that, I think we would have all said, sure, I get it. Sin is when you do bad things. That's what sin is. God gave a command about a piece of fruit because the essence of sin isn't doing bad things. It's turning away from God. I mean, God was saying, just don't eat the fruit of that tree. Because I'm God and you're not. I mean, he's saying, I want you to obey me, obey me about this tree just because you love me. And that's it. But Adam and Eve turned away, went astray. They, they wanted to be their own gods. They wanted to get out from under this God. They were turning away. What they were doing is they were grasping for God's position. Right? We'll be our own gods, thank you very much. And that's it. That's the heart of it all. Everything wrong with the world comes from our putting ourselves in God's rightful place. Grasping for His glory. Reaching out and grasping for a glory of our own. And don't you feel 
this impulse in your heart? I mean, we wake up into this world and we are starved for glory. And so we're grasping for it everywhere we can. I mean, that's what we're doing when we're so desperate to prove our worth, to prove that we're important and we're significant, trying to prove our value, how we're hustling to prove to ourselves, to God, to everyone else that we're enough, that we're okay, that we're beautiful, that we're lovable. And so, yeah, sometimes... All of that, it does show up in behaviors that we would label sins, right? It shows up in sexuality and greed and anger and an abuse of power and on and on we could go. But if the essence of sin is really turning away from God to grasp at our own glory, then it also shows up in our morality. And it also shows up in our religion. Right? Because if I'm decent enough... If I'm good enough, if I behave, if I'm obedient, then I can prove that I'm all right. Then I can prove that I'm okay and that I'm lovable and that I'm enough. I can be my own God. I can be my own Savior. The greatness of sin is found in our turning away and going astray and our rejection of God as King. It's found in our desire to take His rightful place on the throne. And grasp for his glory. So what did God do about the greatness of our sin? Second, let's talk about the greatness of our Savior's salvation. Verse 10 begins with an amazing statement. Yet it was the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord to crush him. It pleased and satisfied the Lord to crush his servant. To crush His only beloved son. Why? It's because of the greatness of our Savior's salvation. How he came to live the life we couldn't live. For us and in our place. And how he came to die the death we should have died. For us and in our place. You see this all throughout the verses. And especially the verses of the last stanza in verses 10 through 12. He came to be put to grief. To be an offering for sin. To bear our iniquities. To be numbered with the transgressors. To bear the sin of many. To be numbered with the transgressors. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he... Be- He became a transgressor or that he was a transgressor, but he was counted as a transgressor in our place. So that we could, verse 11, be counted as righteous because of his righteousness in our place. We're being told that the greatness of our Savior's salvation was found in his being a substitute for us. The greatness of his salvation was found in his sacrificial love for us. You know, there really is no more moving narrative than the narrative of sacrificial love. I mean, the stories we read and the stories we watch on movie screens and the stories that get passed down from generation to generation, the great stories, they all have this. This narrative of sacrificial love running through them. I mean, Les Miserables, right? With its incredible themes. Of sacrifice with Jean Valjean and Cosette and, and Marius, if you remember the story, how many times has that story been told and retold again and again and again? Right? 
more recent stories like uh, Hunger Games. I read all those books, all the Harry Potter books that I read, uh, children's books, really. But stories that captivate us and pull us in. Because at the heart of every story is sacrificial love. Of Katniss sacrificing herself in the place of her sister Primrose. Of Harry's mother dying to save him. Right? Real life stories. Just this past year, I was thinking this morning about the... uh, I remember the story of the coach in uh, Parkland, Florida who shielded students... With his body to escape the gunman, gunman in that school, and he died in the process. Um, the officer who was killed defending um, people in, in the shooting in Thousand Oaks, California, the heroic sacrifices that have been made most recently in, in the wake of the California wildfires. Heroic stories, stories that we love to hear. Stories that inspire us, right? I mean, can you think about this just for a moment? These are the stories that move us in the deepest places of our beings. These are the stories that captivate our imaginations. These are the stories that affect us and inspire us. There's no more powerful story than the story of sacrificial love. And those are stories. Some of them are fiction. Some of them not. Inspiring and affecting and all those kind of things. But they're all stories of sacrificial love for someone else. So to realize that God himself came and he broke into the world to do that for you. Really and personally. For you to know that. And believe that and rest in that, that has the power to change you and to transform your whole life. Here's the wonder of the Christmas story in Jesus' sacrificial love according to Paul. He puts it this way in Philippians. He says, Jesus, who being in, the very, na- who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He was an upside-down, puzzling Savior. The essence and greatness of our sin is our grasping for God's glory, trying to prove that we were something, right? Jesus had glory. And he gave it up for you. Right? It rightfully belonged to him, but he refused to grasp for it. He was something, and he made himself nothing for you. John Stott summarized well, I think, uh, what we're talking about in this, uh, this story of the greatness of our sin and the greatness of our Savior's salvation when he wrote this. He said, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. But God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. And God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. To know the greatness of your Savior's salvation in his sacrificial love, to know that is to know that, I mean, that is true. And real freedom. Life-changing freedom. Because listen, if Jesus sacrificially died in your place, 
then you are as free from guilt and you are as free from condemnation as if you had suffered and died for every one of your sins upon that cross. That's how free you are. And if Jesus really lived a life of perfect righteousness for you and in your place, then every bit of love and delight and approval and satisfaction and honor that Jesus deserves from his father, it's yours. Not diminished to any degree. Do you realize that if this is true, then there is absolutely nothing you have done and nothing you could do to ever forfeit his love for you. And there is absolutely nothing you could ever do to make him love you more than he does right now. And that is freedom that will transform you and change you. Because if we believe this, then guess what? You're finally free to stop grasping To prove your value, your worth, your importance, your lovability. Because it's already yours in Jesus. Okay, finally, the the servant's great exaltation. All of this is humbling. The greatness of our sin. uh, Even what Jesus did for us when he became our great savior. But this might be the most humbling, awe-inspiring, and also simultaneously affirming point of them all. Because the end of verse 11 highlights Jesus' sacrificial love. He came to bear our iniquities on the one hand and to count, um, to count us righteous on the other. But listen to the first part of verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What will he, what will he see? What will he be satisfied in? Verse 10. His offspring. His people. Isaiah was saying his satisfaction, his reward for what he came to do, his delight and his pleasure was seeing all of your sin paid for. And seeing you credited with his perfect righteousness. His reward was you. How profound. And how deep must his love for you be that that is his reward? I can't remember the first time or place I heard someone explain this verse in Hebrews 12 for me. um, But I've marveled over it for a long time. And I think for those of us resting in Jesus, we're going to be marveling over this for an eternity. That's what will occupy us for an eternity. The author of Hebrews wrote this in Hebrews chapter 12. He said, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that was set before him? I mean, what was the joy missing? From the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, whose glory is set above the heavens, right? Who holds all things together by the word of his power. What was the joy missing from him? It was you. You were the joy set before him. You were the reward that was set before him. That's why he left heaven. 
That's why he came as the puzzling, upside-down, voluntary, sacrificial servant. He came to win you, to redeem you, to forgive you, to credit you with his righteousness. You are his, his inheritance, his reward. Listen, kind of funny, I just said listen, you'll get it in a second. But um, you can ask my wife and my, and my kids about this. They're around me an awful lot. Um, and eventually I'm going to have to do something about this. But I'm, I'm a little hard of hearing. And uh, I can get by reasonably well most of the time. Um, but this hearing problem of mine, it always gets magnified when we're... In a crowded place with a lot of background noise. And so maybe we're out at dinner or we're at a party or something like that. And it's just really, really hard for me to follow conversations. And so I usually keep Jennifer close to me so that I can constantly lean over, which annoys her. But I can constantly lean over and say, what's so funny? Um, you know, what did she say? Is he talking to me? Um, stuff like that. Or, or, she, or she'll lean over to me and say, stop shouting. Everyone else here can hear just fine. Um, and, you know, we usually laugh about it, but it, it can be really, really frustrating uh, to miss what's happening. Uh, and, uh, and, what, and what's being said, because everything's being drowned out by all this background noise. You know, Christmas is such a busy time of year. I don't have to tell you that. We all know it, right? So busy. And I fear sometimes it can become so full of noise and activity and commotion that it can sometimes drown out the Christmas story so that it's barely heard. And we don't want to miss the power of hearing and believing this story. Because the one born in a manger, he was born to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was born to die for us. And that message has power to change people. Even you, even me. In the 17th century, um, poet John Donne wrote this, and I'll pretty much use this to conclude. He wrote this, The whole of Christ's life was a continual suffering and death. Others die martyrs, but Christ was born a martyr. He found a Golgotha where he was crucified, even in Bethlehem, where he was born. For to his tenderness then, the straws were almost as sharp as the thorns after. And the manger, as uneasy at first, as the cross at last. His birth and death were but one continual act. And his Christmas day and his Good Friday are but the evening and the morning of one and the same day. From the cradle to the cross is an inseparable line. Christmas not only points forward to Good Friday and Easter... It can have absolutely no meaning apart from that, where the Son of God displayed His glory by His death. We sang it earlier, remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. He was born to save us all from Satan's power when we were what? When we were gone astray, when we had turned away. And that is tidings. Of comfort and joy, comfort 
and joy. Come to Jesus. Come and believe. Come and rest. Come and find freedom and rest and joy in him. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, this opportunity to be together and to celebrate uh, your work of redemption in sending Jesus into this world in order that he might live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. Um, Father, we pray that this good news, that it would that it would be the focus of our thoughts um, this day and even all of our days from this point. Um, Father, we pray that you would remind us uh, that we are your treasure. It's hard for us to believe that about ourselves sometimes. But we pray that you would help us to believe. That you would remind us that you so loved us that you sent your son and you sent him to suffer as a servant for us in order that we might have life in him forevermore. Father, we pray that you would change us and transform us with this story. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.